Let's pray. Our Father and our God, our Savior and our Lord, Spirit that lives within those who accepted Jesus Christ, we praise your holy name. We gather here tonight as you've led us to, to come together as a family in Christ, and we praise you for your word given to us, that we would know a little bit more about who you are and that we would walk in the things that we know about you. Help us, Lord, all to, to build each other up, to encourage one another according to your word, that we would live it out in our lives, that this church, Lord, would be someplace that's different certainly from the rest of the world, that you would be seen in us, that Christ would be seen. They wouldn't remember us, but they would remember Christ. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. What are the three most important things in understanding and interpreting God's word? There's three of them. Do you know what they are? I'll give you a hint. The first one is context. The second one is, if you know the first one, you know the second one. Context. And the third one, I guarantee it is context. Those three. Words are completely without meaning apart from a context. Let me give you an example. When. You might be wondering at this point, when what? When past? When present or when future? Is it when I, go, when, when I went to the store? Is it when I am preaching to you here and now? Or is it when I will go on vacation in the summer? All of a sudden, in each of those sentences, when means something completely different, doesn't it? When is different depending on its context give you a quote from a, a great book about biblical interpretation. Most meaningful communication, and this goes across the board in anything. Meaningful communication involves some type of logical thought flow in which one thought leads naturally to the next in keeping with the genre of literature employed. A poem will read like a poem. A, a narrative will read like a narrative. A preceding statement prepares for the one that comes after it. The words that follow grow out of what precedes. People communicate not with a series of randomly selected ideas, but with related ideas linked together in a logical pattern. It's how we get things across to one another. We explain things. We teach things. If I was to come up here and just quote a bunch of random words and give you gibberish, you'd probably leave pretty quickly, huh? I hope you would. So why is it when it comes to God's word, we are so very willing to take things out of their context? We really need to be careful with what anybody says, but especially with God's word, to be careful that we are not taking his thoughts out of his context. It can lead to some, some terrible things. It can lead to misapplication 
of God's word in our own lives. And when we misapply it to our lives and we, we don't feel like it's, it's working out, why, God, you said this and I don't see it happening, it leads to disappointment. Let me give you an example. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs 22.6. If you've ever heard that statement, the Proverbs are not promises, you've probably seen this one. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Amen? So many parents have read this and have been taught to read this as a promise of God. And their children, they've raised their children in this solid Christian household. We did devotions every day. We went to church and all this kind of stuff. And what happened, Lord? I thought you said, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. But the context of a proverb is not that of a promise. A proverb by nature in its genre is is simply an observation of how things typically will go. It is a, what, what you might be able to call a more often than not statement. Perhaps worse than misapplication might be a misrepresentation of God and his word to the world around us. When we quote someone, we we do them damage when we take what they said out of context, don't we? We take the intended meaning out of what they said or wrote and make them say something that they never really intended to say. It it happens in politics, it happens in media all the time, doesn't it? They take what somebody said out of context so they can make it say what they want it to say. As the world hears about this so-called promise of raising a child in the way he should go... But they know that just down the street from them, there's this Christian family. And boy, oh boy, their kids, watch out. You better not cry, you better not pout, because they'll hear you. And when they do, they'll put a flaming bag of something special on your doorstep. If that's a promise of God, he either got it completely wrong, or he's not as able to keep his promises as those Christians say he is. Are we beginning to understand the danger of pulling God's word out of context in our own lives and for the lives of those around us to whom we represent Jesus Christ and God's word? In our passage today, we have a very special verse. It is, a, it is actually, and I mean this in all seriousness, a very powerful statement of life in Christ. And it's become a bumper sticker. It's sewn on pillows, and it's become an encouraging life verse for thousands upon thousands for all the wrong reasons. Go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, it is just a few verses. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 10 just to give us a little flow. Let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 10. Paul speaking, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Did you catch the verse I'm talking about? Verse 13. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What does this mean? What is Paul trying to, to say to us? If we take it out of its context, that doesn't look like it says if, that we as Christians, we can do anything we set our minds to. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God will bless my endeavors. All we have to do is believe. It's a cat poster, right? It says believe at the top and the kitty cat's trying to crawl up, right? The mantra of our era, believe and God will do it for you. Is that what Paul is saying here? Is that what Paul is trying to get across to us in that verse? Does Paul have some kind of mad survival skills and abilities? Can he do all things because Christ gives him the things and the abilities he needs to get through any situation and to achieve his personal goals? Is that what God wants us to take out of this passage? There's a promotion I want at work. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have to get this lid off this pickle jar. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can move mountains, the power of positive thinking. Is that it? What do we actually have here in this verse, in these verses? Well, we learned in chapter 1, speaking of context, that Paul is where? He is in jail, right? We learned early on, in this letter from Paul to the Philippians, that there are those who are seeking to cause him even greater affliction while he's there by preaching Christ. The situation that he is in is severe enough for him to spend time considering life and death. Chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. We're going to be looking at a few different verses throughout this book as we go through this. Chapter 1, verses 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Externally. Paul is not in a good situation, is he? Externally, he's going through extreme hardship. But this letter that he wrote to the Philippians is, is all about 
perspective and a right understanding of reality. From the greater context of this book, we can see that Paul has a Christ-centered perspective. A perspective of faith that looks forward to a greater reality, looks forward to eternity. Not a brief 90 years on this earth, but a forever. In this book, Paul looks forward to the Sabbath, that time of rest when he will be with Christ. Chapter 1, verse 23. What does he say after he said, 21, he said, For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall not choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire, Paul's heartfelt desire, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul is a man who keeps his eyes on Christ. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. To what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He keeps his eyes. It's like he's running a race. He describes uh, an Olympic race where he's, he's forgetting who cares what's on the track behind him. It's only what's ahead of him that is important. And what's ahead of him is Jesus Christ. That relationship that he has with Christ by faith. That resurrection of the dead that he's looking forward to. Paul has a Christ-centered perspective and he values his relationship with Christ above all else. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, as rubbish, as fecal matter, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. For Paul, Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is all. He's his reason for living. He, even life itself is found in Christ alone. As Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. All things made by him and for him, right? Gave him life in the first place and then redeemed that sinful life by his blood shed at the cross. The reality that Paul longs for, the reality that he keeps his eye on, is not of this world. Chapter 3, verses 20 and following. He says to them, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
Paul kept his eyes on Christ. Jesus is his everything. Verse 11 of our passage today, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That word content there, in its ordinary use, if Socrates was to use that word, it means it reflects an inward self-sufficiency. An inward self-sufficiency. Paul here is contrasting his external reality or situation with his internal reality and situation. Externally, at this time, it's a rather low point, wouldn't you say? He's been brought low. He's in chains and in captivity. Not for having done anything wrong, simply for preaching Christ. But in the past, he's also had abundance. He's had plenty, and he's also had hunger. He's been in abundance and in need. He's been in every situation that you can think of. But whatever his externals, whatever his external situation, inwardly, Paul has a peace in his heart and mind that surpasses a worldly understanding. If you look at him from a worldly perspective, he has nothing to be happy about. But Paul says in in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that Paul has, that that inward sufficiency, comes from God. Paul has a contentment. He has that inward sufficiency, but it is not of himself. Instead, his inward sufficiency comes from his relationship with Christ. Paul has a Christ sufficiency because Christ is sufficient. Jesus Christ is enough for him because he knows that in Christ he has more than anything this world could offer. And therefore he can endure any external situation, any earthly circumstance, if it is good or it is bad, he can face it and endure it because his earthly gain or his earthly loss is not his concern at all. Bottom of the list for Paul. Again, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I I may gain Christ. Paul's inward sufficiency comes by faith in Christ. So, Here Paul's in jail, here Paul's in chains, here Paul's in this terrible situation, but he says he has this inner sufficiency that comes from this Christ 
that he, he keeps his eyes on and he focuses on and he's running to him with everything that he has and everything else is lost compared to this Christ. So who is this Christ? Is he of such surpassing value that he eclipses the things of this earth? Is it really that worthwhile to know him? Well, according to God's word, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is sovereign over all creation. Revelation seventeen fourteen it says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Not might conquer them, not could conquer them, will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Jesus Christ is the creator of the heavens and the earth, Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And that's a Hebraic uh, phrase that means not just the beginning and the end, but everything in between. He is God Almighty, the one who controls the wind and the waves, the one who justifies the believer and reconciles us to the Father. Romans chapter 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, the price for our sins paid in full. When we stand before the judge, we are recognized as clean, righteous, forgiven. Our sins paid for by somebody else in our place. By Jesus Christ, a, a salvation we don't deserve in any way, shape, or form. We could never do enough good to put ourselves before God and earn a way into heaven. It can't happen. It won't happen. The smallest blemish on us makes us unworthy of the perfection, the absolute perfection that God is. And he will not abide by sin. He won't live with it. But in Christ, we have been justified by his blood. How much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? He's the one who is risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And there was no body to be found. No one could argue the evidence of his resurrection in that day and age. The tomb was empty. Roman soldiers who would have never fallen asleep on the job because they knew that that would mean their very lives 
were found asleep on the job. The evidence abounds. We won't get into that today. But Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen. If such a one is, and that's a rhetorical question, by the way, and, and, and he's done all this and is risen from the dead, if he has revealed himself alive and has given evidence of his power in creation, in his word and prophecies fulfilled, and in his very presence on earth, if he says to us something like, I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. If he says that to us, if he says nothing, no power on this earth, nothing created will ever be able to separate you from my love. You are secure, sealed by his spirit. he said these things we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt as he's proven himself that it is true we can count on it Paul realized that this time here on this earth has a singular purpose Christ Jesus Everything else is peripheral. This life has one purpose, and it's not marriage or a house or a white picket fence or 2.5 kids, not a job, not school, not my next meal, not life, not death. If I do any of those, I need to do it to the glory of Christ Jesus in my life. Because this is not our home, because this is not my home, I can, I can endure all things, any situation, rejoicing. That's what Paul said. I can go through any trial or tribulation because I don't do it without purpose. And I don't do it alone. I do it with and for Jesus Christ, who has saved me from my sinful condition, my sinful end, and has given me a hope and a future everlasting life even in jail even in chains i can share the gospel like he said early on in chapter one i want you to know what's happened to me has served the gospel all the guard all the praetorian guard everybody here in the house knows why i'm here even in jail i can rejoice because the sabbath the weekend it's almost here. The work is almost done. Even in jail, I keep my eyes on Christ and press forward to the upward call. Paul longed for the day that he would be in the presence of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 23 again. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Life or death. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
is it far better for us? Are we still holding on to everything we have? Are we living and, and thinking like this life is all we have? I better squeeze the most out of it. Often our discontentment stems from, from a false narrative that we've been fed, a false perspective that we've been led to believe. This life and these things is all you have, and, and it's where your value lies. You need these things to survive, to be who you are. You need the right clothes. You need the right car. You need the good job. As Satan tries to distract us from being effective for the kingdom of God. When Elijah was born to us, before he was born to us, we had a, a great lady that we knew who was helping work with Pam and everything, and she reminded us that whatever he comes out to be, We've got enough kids in this world who can build the next nuclear bomb. We need more godly kids. We need more kids who will represent Christ in this world. Satan tries to distract us by attracting us to the tangible things around us. And it's hard to have this Pauline perspective on, on life in this world, especially here in America where we live and we die for the right to all this stuff. But what is survival and what is success? Is this life all we are hoping and, and groping around for? Isn't survival being in the presence of God forever? as opposed to being condemned to hell after a brief 90 years of worldly success. Isn't success seeing somebody else brought into eternal life, taking them from just 90 brief years into an eternity of joy and the very presence of God, knowing as we are known, seeing him face to face, worshiping him? Isn't life, eternal life, still waiting for us? We need to allow God to transform our way of thinking to align more with his. Just like Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. From, from this perspective of reality, God's reality, and I tell you what, he's the one who put reality in its place. If that job promotion doesn't work out for me, God will still provide. He'll still provide me with everything I need to do his will. And I can still go on. I can still endure because I serve a greater and an eternal call than anything that would be found on this earth apart from Christ. 
If that lid won't come off the pickle jar, I know it's a real issue. God has still given me the lunch and the ability to eat it, yeah? I can still go on and endure this sandwich either way. And it'll probably still give me the energy and strength that I need to serve the gospel, won't it? It's not the end of the world. I know somebody who's a great example of this verse. And as she's gotten older, her vision and hearing have gotten worse. She used to love reading God's word. She used to love talking with others about God. And then it was deaf ministry when the hearing got too bad. Her world is closing in on her. It's all she can do to pray on behalf of others around her. And so she does. She's enduring everything this world throws at her because she serves a greater purpose than herself with a Savior who will one day remedy all the rest of it. From this verse 13 perspective, Paul could say, I can even die here and now because in Christ I live. If my situation should be brought so low that I am executed, that I am poured out as a drink offering, he says in chapter 2, verse 17, I can still rejoice even in this. I can do all things, even die through him who strengthens me. This world is not my home. And in the end, I look forward. Even now, I look forward to eternity with my Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for the strength we can find in Christ and in Christ alone. The hope that you have given us. And you don't just tell us and, and, and expect us to, to go, oh yeah, okay, I, I believe that just because you said it. Lord, you've given us evidence all around us, evidence in creation of your very existence. Lord, you've given us evidence in your word and how beautifully it lines up with your creation and with history and with reality, prophecies fulfilled. Such evidence, such knowledge is too wonderful for us. We don't deserve it. And you've given it to us that we might know and believe Jesus Christ and who he is and look forward to the hope, the eternal reality that you have given to us. And Lord, I pray that we would walk in this perspective, this Philippians perspective, that your reality would replace the reality that we've been led to believe, that this world is all we have. Father God, give us strength, wisdom, understanding that goes far beyond anything we are. The ability to endure anything this world gives to us. Because we walk with Almighty God. Thank you, Lord. That's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.